0: Our reading this morning comes from Acts chapter 27, so please turn there in your Bibles with me so you can follow along as I read. If you don't have a Bible of your own, our ushers have Bibles available. Just raise your hand and they'll bring a Bible to you that you can use throughout our service this morning. Acts chapter 27, reading that entire chapter. Please follow along attentively. If you remember, <clears throat> the last time we looked at Acts chapter 26, what we found is that Paul was giving his defense um, before um, Festus and before King Agrippa and Bernice. And um, he was there in on on trial in Caesarea, giving his defense. He had given his defense, and after he gave his defense, um, the council met together privately, and they said, wow, this guy is not guilty of anything worthy of imprisonment or death. And if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, he could be set free. But now he's appealed to Caesar, he must indeed go to Rome to have trial before Caesar. And so there is where we pick up at the beginning of chapter 27. Let's all stand in respect to the reading of God's word, Acts chapter 27. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustine cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of dramatium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. Coasting along with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lassia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, "'Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives.'" But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there. And on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon, a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Kora. And we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on, on certus, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, When the 14th night had come, as we were driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little further, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, From the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, "'Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. "'Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, "'for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you.' "'And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, "'he broke it and began to eat. "'Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves.' We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. They cast off the anchors and let them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Amen. May God give us understanding in this chapter that we read and will be preaching through this morning. If you would remain standing with me, let's have a moment of prayer. Would you bow your heads with me as we come to pray? After prayer, our choir will come with special music, and then that will be followed by the preaching of God's word today. Let's bow in a word of prayer. We thank you, Father, for allowing us to come together today to be able to worship, to fellowship together for the purpose of worshiping you It is on this first day of the week that we come to worship as believers have been doing for over 2,000 years now. Worshiping you, Father, for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave his life, paid for our sin, and then was raised from the dead on that Sunday morning. We celebrate what Christ has done because in paying for our sin, by us trusting in him, you grant us forgiveness for sin. Raising him from the dead, you show that sin no longer has dominion over him and over all who trust in him. We thank you for that freedom, that power, That you've now given us the Holy Spirit given to each one to believe in you to fight and to battle against sin and to ultimately win that battle. We celebrate, we worship you, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your power in our lives that we can face life and we can even face death with hope and trust knowing that you are in control of both. And you give us power over that. We thank you for all who are here today. We pray for those who couldn't be with us today. Several, Lord, are sick or have some type of ailment. Some are sick and still here today. We just thank you for uh, for Riley here, who will be going back to Texas um, later on, and we just pray that you would uh, give safety to her in a safe summer. As we think about a safe summer, we think about all of our our students, or children who will be uh, taking a summer off or from school. We pray, Lord, that you will watch over them and keep them safe. That is nothing we take for granted. We live in a city just filled with dangers. Yeah. You can't even uh, uh, walk off the steps of your home without being in danger of someone driving crazy or someone acting crazy. So we pray for safety for our little ones and for each of us. Yeah. We pray for those who are sick today, Lord. We pray for for Bill Dick, and uh, we know he's having trouble with his back and also trouble with his legs, and it's so intense that he couldn't be here today. You know, that must be something. We ask for your healing and your blessing in his life. We pray for Brother Willie Wallace, who's not here today, and asking, Lord, that you would just work in his body and his ailment and, and bring him to healing We thank you for Mickey that's back with us today after not feeling well last week. And we just pray, Lord, that you just continue to bless and to watch over her, Lord. There's others, Lord, who've had different ailments. And we just pray your blessing and your healing on each one. Thank you for each one that's returned now from travels, from vacations, from different engagements. And we pray, Lord, that you would just bless our fellowship. Open our hearts to understand your word to understand your truth, and to gain insight and encouragement from your word today. We pray this now, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. your tears away, and if your heart is broken, just lift
1: your hands and say, oh, I know that I can make it. I don't
0: know if the choir realized how well that song goes along with the text this morning. My life is in your hands. I know that I can make it. I wonder why the latter part of Acts spends so much time in the life of Paul that doesn't seem to get much, doesn't seem to get anywhere. He seems to be stuck in jail for over two years in one trial after another with the same conclusion that he's innocent but he's not set free. And ultimately now he's sent to, it's almost like Supreme Court, he's he's sent to to the highest uh, uh, official in the land where his case is going to be made. And you would think in our way of thinking, we'd be thinking, well, Lord, you're going to set me free, right? You're going to set me free. But that's not God's objective. And I know that bothers us sometimes. (laughs) You're in the midst of your trial and you just want to get out of it. (laughs) And that's not God's objective all the time. What I noticed, though, is that Paul is overwhelmingly focused and drawn to God's objective rather than his. Let me share a secret with you. That's where joy comes from. Amen. That's where confidence and reassurance comes from. Ultimately, God wants you to drop your objective and make your life align with his. And you will find an overwhelming sense of joy and purpose. Think about it. Paul is spending time in jail. He had just come from one missionary trip after another. He had seen, he had faced trouble. He had faced challenges. But at least he had the sense of the gospel was going out. And it was impacting people. It was impacting lives. Some people were being saved. Some people were so angry they tried to kill him. But at least there was some reaction. Now he's sitting in jail. And it seems like compared to what he was doing, like it's a wasted time. We go through stages in our lives where it seems like we're not accomplishing what we think we ought to be accomplishing. Or maybe not having the success that we think we ought to have. But hold on a minute and look at God's perspective. I want you to turn, before we march into this chapter, turn to chapter 23 of Acts And I believe it's verse 11. When Paul had first come into Jerusalem and he decided to make a vow in the temple and it was there he was attacked by the Jews who had chased him down from all over the world and come to Jerusalem to attack him. And now they were, they, they were beating him and trying to kill him. And the government stepped in and arrested Paul for his protection. It says in verse 10... I'm in Acts 23, verse 10. When the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. See what happened. Now, this is the verse I want you to focus on, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, I'm going to set you free, Paul. No, he doesn't say that. Hey, man. Hey, Paul. Don't worry about it. We're going to sue them, and you're going to be rich. And you're going to be doing all kinds of ministry all over the world. Flying on your fancy mule and horse. No, he doesn't say that. He says, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Who said this? You're right. Some said Jesus, some said the Lord, the same person. The Lord said this. Think about it. Who said this? The Lord said this. Who did he say it to? To Paul. And what does he say? First of all, take courage. In other words, don't lose heart. I'm I'm always, it's fascinating to me, when the Bible talks about courage, it says take it. You know, it's not like it's it's, going to be given to you. You got to grab it. (laughs) You got to hold on to it. God has it available to you. If you look through his lens, you'll be able to grab it. Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you might, must testify in rome jesus himself is saying paul i'm taking you to rome for my purpose to testify about me this is what jesus told him in the middle of his ordeal so we're back in chapter 23 now now let's skip forward to our chapter in chapter 27 Since that time, Jesus told him that he had spent two years in Caesarea in jail. He's had numerous trials there, and now they have decided, instead of setting him free, they decided to give him his wish. Of course, he only wished that because he knew if he didn't appeal to Caesar, he'd be sent back to Jerusalem, and they were, they were going to kill him there. Or en route, Paul knew that So he had to appeal to Caesar for his own safety. All right, chapter twenty-seven. Yes, we do have a a map, and um, I guess I'm gonna. I'll just illustrate once on here. We're gonna start off in Caesarea here, and. Paul is going to go from here. Oh, thank you. Technology, wow. <laughs> I can stand back here. All right, so we're going to start off here. He's going to come up here and around here, and we're going to find, follow this light green line. And here it tells you in a the, in thing, it's Paul's voyage to Rome. For those on this side, it tells you this is, this is blind paul's voyage to rome uh you can barely see it on here but if you can't see this well boom um you have it in the back of your bible if you have a study bible you have a map like that in the back of your bible so i'm not going to keep referring to this but i just kind of want you to see the general journey that he goes on he starts off in caesarea that's where he had his trial And from there, he goes to Sidon in chapter 3. I mean, in verse 3, I'm sorry. And a couple other places, Myra, Lycia, Snidus in verse 7. And in in verse 8, it says he comes to this place of fair havens near Lycia. But before I get there, I want to point out just a couple of things. Um, It says here, In verse 3, the next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius, now it explains who Julius is. He is the centurion who's who's been put in charge of Paul. Now, that's an important thing. Um, Centurion was was, uh, one who had charge of 100 soldiers, so he was in high command, and he was kind of like special forces person. Paul was considered an important prisoner. Um, for several reasons, because the Jews wanted him killed, first of all, because um, you, you see earlier in Acts, he was, he was accused, and rightly so, of turning the world upside down. He had a huge effect on the entire Uh, 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 culture in the entire world because he brought the gospel to them and now he was on his way to Rome uh, for his appeal and so he was in fact an important prisoner and they uh, assigned an important person to him but I want you to see how God works in this. In verse 3 it says this the next day we put in at Sidon and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for God had set um Paul in good favor with the centurion who was head over all of this. I want you to see how God is working in a, in a small sense, sort of behind the scenes, but it's not a small thing. That Paul has the favor of this official so that he can not do anything wrong or or, or anything illegal, but to to have the freedom to interact with his friends, to give encouragement to them and receive encouragement from them. Now, I believe the centurion took great risk to do this because if Paul wasn't trustworthy and he gave him this freedom, he could escape. And the centurion will be totally responsible for this important prisoner and probably lose his life as a result of this. So God, you can see, is working in Paul's favor to put him in favor with this man in such a way that this man trusted him. And I think this is a key component throughout this chapter because you're going to see the impact of that as we move on in this story. Here's the point. Even when things seem down in your life, and that's how it was if we look from our point of view at Paul's life, God is working in ways to bring you in favor to complete his will. Now, now let, let me just challenge that a little bit because we got folks who... who who preach what I call this prosperity gospel, saying that, you know, God wants to prosper you. God wants to make you rich. God wants to bless you. Of course God's going to bless you. You're blessed because you're his. But it doesn't always mean these physical blessings and material blessings. It can include that. But that's not the whole point of it. Because if you look at Jesus' life, he was poor. He had little. He had nothing. But God favored him, blessed him, and completed his purpose for him, and he suffered in obedience so that we could gain God's richest blessing. So I want you to see that God is bringing Paul in favor with this person not to to bring around some material blessing that means little in the scheme of things, but God is working to accomplish his purpose, which means much more than just material blessing. So he puts them in favor with the centurion. So Paul gets on this ship with a bunch of other prisoners who are all headed to Rome. You remember another time when Paul was in prison with a whole bunch of prisoners in Philippi. And he kind of took command over that situation, and he had gained favor there as well, and it brought about the salvation of the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16. So let's follow their travel One thing I want you to note about, let's just look at some common things in, in this. Instead of going through each step of where they stopped at, let's just look at some common things. How this chapter describes Paul's overall situation. I, I want to point that out. In verse 4, I'm going to look at a few phrases and you uh, take a picture there and, and see what those phrases tell you. Verse 4, we see the phrase, uh, because the winds were against us. Verse 7, I see this phrase, arrive with difficulty off Snidus. Verse 7, the wind did not allow us to go further. Verse 8, coasting along it with difficulty. Verse 9, since much time had passed. So they got to one coast. And it's like they challenge after challenge after challenge. It's like you setting out to go or take a trip on a long drive and everywhere along the way, there's something else. Your radiator overheats. Your tire is low. You know, your battery gets low. And I mean, it's just one thing after another. Normally, we will say, hey, you know. This ain't God intended. <laughs> we ask God to bless this trip, right? God works in his own way. If I want to keep going, verse 9, it says, The voyage was now dangerous. Verse 10, the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. This is the warning that Paul gave to them before they took off of the shore. You see, they had gotten to a point where they were trying to decide, should we go further and try to beat the weather, beat the winter, or should we winter down here? And they made a decision, no, we don't really want to winter down here. It's not a good place to stay. So we should keep going. But Paul had advised them, hey man, uh, you know, don't, 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 don't go any further because it's, it's going to be a tough journey. Now, of course, they didn't listen to Paul. They thinking, well, first of all, he's a prisoner; he's not a professional sailor. What does he know? And so they decided. Uh, you know, we can understand. They decided to keep on going. Verse twelve: The harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in. Another phrase in verse 10, and verse 12, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix. Verse 14, but soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster, struck down from the land. Now, I'm going to tell you something. Whenever the wind got a name, <laughs> that tells tell you something. You know, we started naming our storms here now. And I I don't know. It, it, now we name them, you know, all male and female names, you know. But, but, but it, it must be something else when you give it a name. The northeastern. In other words, this was a common uh, storm, a very powerful storm that would come up. And so, hey, they were unfortunate enough to get caught in it. Verse 15, the ship was caught. And could not face the wind. We gave way to it and were driven along. You can imagine, you know, you can imagine those huge ships with the sails on them. And they're trying to go in the direction they want to go. And they hope it's the time of year that the winds blow so for them to have that kind of journey. But it says, no, the winds were counter to them. And they, they, they could only fight it for so long. And they just say, hey, we're going to drift. And that's what happened. Verse 17 Fearing that they would run aground on the Sartus. Um, I'm told that the Sartus was an area that was called a graveyard for ships. And it was kind of like, uh, I don't know, I kind of picture it. This is not true, but I just kind of pictured it this way as the Bermuda Triangle. We always hear that. You go through there, you don't want to go through there. And that's kind of how the Sartus was. It, was. it was an area that you avoided whenever you could. And so they were trying to avoid um, that area. Verse 17, thus they were driven along. It tells you they they no longer are controlling the direction they're going. The wind is just blowing them wherever it wanted it to go. Verse 18, we were violently storm-tossed. Think about that. Violently storm-tossed. This whole voyage has this idea of being on a ship. I don't know how many of you have have been on a ship. I'm not talking about a boat. Of course, a huge ship seems like a boat when it's in the middle of a huge body of water. And that's what's the case here. And... You have skilled individuals who know how to guide this ship. They know how to use the stars and the sun to navigate where they want to go. Um, and they have experience of how the seas operate. But here they are in the middle of the sea, and they have no, long, no more control. Now, I know how to swim, but it doesn't mean I want to be in the middle of the ocean because you can only swim so long. And besides there, there's a lot of stuff in the ocean that can swim a lot faster than you can and has you on the menu. So they're they're in a situation. It says violently storm-tossed. Used to take our kids to amusement parks, Great America, wherever else they wanted to go. And I got smart. Uh, it didn't take me long to realize that I should pay for my ticket, but I didn't have to earn it. <laughs> See, when I, was, when I was younger, it's like, hey, I'll pay for this ticket. I want to go on every ride in here. As I got older, I'm like, hey, hey, hey. I'm going to cheer y'all on while y'all go on all these rides. I soon realized that I couldn't take the twirly, twirly, twirly motion of some of those rides. But I envision this ship like that. I almost get seasick just thinking about it. Just the regular motion of up and down. And then you add some wind to that. And you add a storm to that. And you are just in the middle of Nowhere. It says, verse 18, they begin the next day to jettison the cargo. I want to tell you something. When you load a ship, you're not putting anything on there that you don't think you need or that you don't need to at least transport from one port to another. So for you to, to, to jettison a cargo means there's something more important than the stuff, and that's your life. So they begin to throw stuff overboard. And then it has this phrase, let me see, is it in verse 18? Verse 20. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us. The Bible often uses that phrase, or kind of invert the phrase, no small means a huge, right? (laughs) It's not small no small tempest in other words this huge tempest this powerful waves, and it says neither sun nor stars appeared for many days that meant a couple things first of all there's no light secondly um their navigation was by stars so they can't navigate anymore Spin around, close your eyes, and spin around and open and try to figure out where you are when there's nothing but water all around you. You don't know if you're going east, west, north, or south, and at some points you might not even know if you're going up or down. So it being dark had a huge impact. They could no longer navigate. And plus, we know from living in Wisconsin in the winter that darkness has an impact on you. You go through winter where you wake up in the morning and it's dark. You go to work and you get out of work at night and it's dark. Not only is it dark, but it's cold. It just seems like it won't end. There's a depression that comes over us when we spend time constantly in that kind of environment and so you can imagine the impact that this is having on the crew verse 27 it says as we were being driven across the adriatic sea picture that they're not controlling it anymore the wind is just pushing them wherever It wanted them to go. Verse 27, about midnight. Kind of sets the scene for where they are. Verse 29, fearing that we might run on the rocks. I guess it would be like driving a car (laughs) without a road without a paved road, and don't know, you you can't control the brakes, (laughs) you're being pushed along, and you don't know what you might hit. Here's a situation that Paul finds himself in. I want to point out a ray of hope. We pointed out that at the start of this, that God had given him favor with Julius, who was the the centurion, the head of the soldiers there. In verse 22, Paul, we'll start at verse 21. Paul has to address the people. I want you to notice something in this chapter with Paul and his influence on the crew. When they started out, and early in the trip he says, "Uh, I don't think that's a good idea. We shouldn't go there. In fact, he says, if we do, we're gonna be in danger of not just the cargo itself, but the ship itself and even our lives. And they decided not to listen to him. Now they're in the middle of this storm and it says, verse 21, since they had been without food for a long time. Now, why would they be without food for a long time? Can you imagine being tossed on the sea? Up and down. Up and down. up, and Up and down. They don't feel like eating. Seasickness hits them very hard. The nervousness and the tension of all that's going on and trying to do all they can to save their lives. So they find that they haven't eaten. Besides that, food could have spoiled. Um, Some perhaps was tossed overboard. Not all of it, as we'll see later. But it says, since they've been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said... I like how he addresses them. we always told, you know, um, don't say I told you so. But Paul says, I told you so. In fact, he starts off with that, but that's not all that he says. He starts off, "Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail. But he doesn't leave it there. He says, yet now, verse 22, I urge you to take heart. What is he doing? Where does true encouragement come from? Paul is not making up words of, of nonsense. I don't like when people try to encourage me with something that doesn't mean nothing. Empty words don't do a whole lot for me. I'll just be quiet. I'll work through it on my own. Empty words don't do a whole lot. I realize there's situations that we get into and we just don't know what to say. We want to encourage someone and we don't know what to say. Take a point from Paul. What does he do? He simply parrots what Jesus had told him. Take courage. Why? Because things are going to get better? You don't know that. No, God didn't promise you that. God didn't promise that your day will be well, that the sun will come up and that it will stop raining, that you'd have money in your pocket, that you'd never have to visit a doctor or hear him say, Words that cause you grief. He never promised that. But what can you bank on is what he has promised. That's what Paul does. He takes the same encouragement with which he has been encouraged and extends it to them. Why? Because it's from God and it's absolute. That means something. What does he say to them? Take courage. Verse 22. Take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Now, is he making this up to make them feel good? I I think, man. Hey, we're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. How do you know that, Paul? Where do you get that from? Are these just empty words? No, they're not. He goes on to tell you why. There will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Now, God told him that through his messenger angel. One is you're going to get there and I've given you all the crew. That's what God has sent this message to Paul. Now, I think we do have to be careful when we seek to encourage. We need to know what God has says, what God has said and stick to that. By the way, that's sufficient. You say, well, pastor, I want you to tell me that my wife don't have cancer. I can't tell you that. I can tell you that you can trust God for whatever your circumstances are, with or without cancer, that he shows himself strong to carry you through. And we got a couple folk here who can say amen to that. You see, it's not the absence of the trial, it's the presence of God. The confidence comes from knowing what God has said. Being confident of this one thing, he who has begun a good work in you will continue it. He'll complete it to the day of Jesus Christ. God has promised me that. That's what I can bank on. That's what... That's what clears my eyes from tears in the middle of the night. That's what gives me reassurance. That's what gives me hope. Not some empty promise based on something that somebody thinks or or, or, or wishes on me, but what God has said in in his word. That's why I read his word. That's why I want to know his word. That's why I want to know what he has promised. I want to make sure what he has assured me. By the way, what has he assured me? He assured me that faith in Jesus Christ means the forgiveness of my sins, means eternal life with him. And I'll tell you, that's good enough. That's good enough. He doesn't promise me I'm going to be a millionaire by age 50 because that already happened. That ship already passed. He doesn't promise you that you're going to be good looking. He promised me, but that's a whole other thing. (laughs) He doesn't promise you perfect health. He doesn't promise you that, that your finances won't fail. He doesn't promise you that you'll always have a new car in your garage. He promised you better than that. He promises you him. I will never leave you nor forsake you jesus says my sheep hear my voice i know them and they follow me and i give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish i remember as a little boy thinking about those promises i I would kind of challenge them and think as my dad would preach and i said well dad if jesus promised these things how come we still have funerals Didn't these people, some of these people, trust God? In other words, did he promise them that they would never die? No, he promised them better than that. (laughs) He promised after they died, they'd have eternity with him if they simply trusted in him and believed him. Now, here in this situation, God actually promised Paul that he would get there. He says, I'm taking you to Rome. You must go to Rome. And Paul could count on that. So I want to say, be careful on, on, on what, you know, I can't promise you that you're going to get to Detroit if you're journeying there. I can't make that promise. And nobody else can either, except God. But know what his concrete promises are, and trust and anchor in that, and you will find that it's sufficient. It's sufficient. It's sufficient. If you're looking for stuff to worry about, you will never run out. But if you're trusting in God, you'll never run out either. You'll never run out of things to trust him over and things to trust him for. This chapter tells us a little bit about leadership as well. Paul could encourage these men because he had experienced experience relationship with God and it is an experience it was an experience of faith there, there's no funny business no hokey pokey there, 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 look. he simply walked with God and God says Paul I've got a mission for you and you in fact have witnessed to me in Jer- Jerusalem and you're going to go to Rome Paul says Look, guys, an angel of God, of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship, he said, Don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And he said, Everybody with me is going to be okay. Now, as we read the rest of the chapter, I want you to think about what that means. Does that mean there won't be any drama? That won't mean there won't be any challenge? There won't be, does that mean there won't be any issues to contend with? No. As we read through the rest of the chapter, we find out that after he said this, they got into a terrible storm. They tried everything they could to keep themselves safe. This is part of the will of God. Let me, let me show you one thing that, that, that happened. Um... verse 30 let's start at verse 27 when the fourteenth night had come and as they were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land so they took sounding and found twenty fathoms you might wonder what that is you know they didn't have sonar like we had today they simply dropped an anchor with a rope and measured how deep the water was there okay and they kept going, and they dropped the anchor again and measured how deep. And they were like, oh, wow, it was that deep over there, and it's a lot more shallow over here. We are headed to a land. We might hit something real fast. We don't want to do that. That's, that's what happened. So it says, verse 28, uh, let's keep going. Verse 29, fearing that they might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for the day to come. <laughs> In other words, they did all they could and they couldn't do anymore. You know, that's part of God's will for your life as well. He says, Paul, you're going to get there safe, but it doesn't mean you don't have to do stuff that you gotta do. We oftentimes think, I prayed to God, I can just sit back and do nothing now. No, God's gonna answer your prayer in the ways, sometimes some conventional ways. That means you're doing all that you can do. Now, um, Now, here's the part I want you to get to, verse 30. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, now, keep in mind, you got got a couple types of people here. You got the sailors. They were the experienced uh, uh, shipmen who knew how to take care of the ship. And you got the prisoners, right? (laughs) They just there for the ride, right? All right. Um, So the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat. That's the lifeboat. OK, a little lifeboat that they kept on the ship. They were trying to lower that and they, they were trying to abandon ship. they like, we gone. We out of here. It's like they had a real quick meeting in the back room. Say, hey, man, this ship is going down fast. Hey, we got the lifeboat. Let's act like we finna lower the anchor and we're going to slip onto this lifeboat. See ya. That's what they were going to do. Now, what happens? First of all, what would have happened had they done that is the ship would have been there without any pilot, without anybody who knew how to take care of a ship. So that would have been bad for Paul and the prisoners. So it says this, verse 31, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers. Now, he didn't talk to the sailors. Who does he talk to? The centi- God gave him a rapport with the most powerful man there. So Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you can't be saved. In other words, he said, Paul said, look, man, if they, go, if they leave, we are doomed. Because we got nobody who could run the ship. It's like, it's like being in the midair on a plane and the pilot decide, I got my parachute. I got my lifeboat. See ya. And Paul said, don't let them go. If those guys go, we're doomed. That's what Paul says. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. (laughs) Now, that's kind of drastic. I don't think Paul intended for them to do all that. He just said, don't let them go. But, you know, they could have used that lifeboat. Later on, you see, they, they could have used it later on. But th- th- the day was kind of just drastic. Just cut this off, and we ain't going to let nobody escape. And all hopes of ever escaping is now washed away on that light boat drifting across the sea. So they cut that down pretty, pretty uh, uh, sharply. God is still orchestrating to, through the mess so his will could be accomplished. And he's using a rapport that he's given Paul with the centurion. Um, and Paul is, is now a leader on the ship. He's recognized. The centurion listens to him now where he didn't listen to him before. God has put him in this position. Later on, we're told there's 276 men on this ship. And Paul has the respect of just about every one of them. How did he do this? God placed him in this because God gave him a task and a purpose and a journey. And that's what this ship is about. Later on, the ship would lose just about—well, it would lose all of its cargo. Every single person on the ship has to jump ship and swim to land or grab a piece that they can float on and float to land. But we're told this at the end of the chapter— Verse 44, the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship, and so it was that all were brought safely to land. God brings about his purpose. His purpose wasn't to save the ship. His purpose wasn't to save the cargo. His purpose was to, first of all, to get Paul to Rome, Secondly, in addition to that, he promised that he would save everyone with Paul. And he did just that. You can trust God to do what he says he's going to do. And you can also trust that it's not going to be without difficulty. But in that difficulty, you can trust God. He will carry you through. He will provide all the things. When when the sailors about to jump ship and, and and that would put them in jeopardy, God stopped that. God did that. God intervenes. This is about God's purpose. Now, keep in mind the whole the the big picture. God Jesus had told Paul, you're going to be a testimony for me everywhere I send you. Now that you've been in Jerusalem, I'm sending you to Rome. That's what it's about. Do you know your life and my life has a purpose? And God blesses you in all the little things in your life, but the overall purpose is for you to accomplish the, His purpose for your life. It, it may be as simple as mothering or parenting the children that God has set before you and instilling in them what God has sent you to instill. It may be as it is for me to faithfully preach God's word to whoever he sends in this building so that they might have hope, trusting in God in his way and his purpose. I can't always measure if, if that was a success or not. To be frankly, I've stopped measuring that. I've, I only measured did I do what God wanted me to do. God has given you a purpose, and he will give you everything you need to accomplish that purpose. Buy into his purpose. Be sold out for his purpose. Abandon your purpose and embrace God's purpose and recognize with God's purpose is, is so much good in it. It's so much better than just your empty purpose. God's purpose. Embrace it. These people got to the shore safely. They aren't all the way at Rome yet. There's no, another chapter to go, but they have been protected by God and guided, guarded by God, guided by God, God. They will accomplish what God has for them to accomplish. Let's pray. Then I'm going to ask our men to come for our communion today as we take a part of that. Father, we thank you for how you work in the lives of your people, even those who are not yet your people, but you're giving your word to them. We pray, Lord, that we would embrace your purpose, and with that, embrace the hope that comes, with the promise that comes from you. Open our eyes to see you, to hear you, to trust you, to walk with you, in spite of all the challenges that we face. There's someone here, Lord, today that's in the middle of a storm. This metaphor that we use was actually played out in Paul's life. It was a real storm. We face all of these challenges, Lord. I pray right now that they would just simply bow down to you and say, Lord, I don't know all that I'm going to go through, but I want to trust in you. I want to trust you. You are worthy of my trust. Show me step by step the particulars of what you want me to do, and I'll do it. I want to walk with you, Lord. I want to trust in this Jesus. I want to walk in his way. I pray for that person today, Lord, that you would encourage their hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Leaders, would you come as we present the Lord's Supper today? Communion, the Lord's Supper, is a time when we remember what Jesus has done for us. There's two elements of it that remind us of Christ's provision for us. is a wafer. In their day, they took bread. Today, we use a wafer. Um... Just because it's convenient for us to do it that way. Safe and it's healthy. That represents Jesus' body. Jesus stepped down from heaven to take on a human body so that he could be the Lamb of God and be the sacrifice for our sin. The other element is juice, and that represents his blood, that he actually died. He shed his blood on the cross. His blood is the payment for my sin, for your sin, for all who would trust in him. We remember what Christ has done. In remembering, we're reminded that this memorial is for those who trust Christ. If you're not sure that you're a believer in Christ, then don't take communion today. But that's not the only requirement. It's for those who trust Christ, who are walking with him in obedience how do you know if you're walking in obedience with Him? You're, you're doing what He says clearly to do. One of the things that we have done is to say, look, if you're a member in the church, God wants you to be a part and connected with God's people after you trust in Him. If you're not a member in a church or this church, you're not walking in obedience to God. And I can understand you've moved from this place and you're waiting to, to look at this place. But most people I talk to, is like, they five years. Still ain't no member nowhere. So I'm not talking about borderline. God says place yourself under accountability with God's people and serve Him. Don't play games with that then if there's some obvious sin in your life that you haven't turned from, when we have sin in our life, God tells us to repent and turn from it, not make excuses for it or plans to continue in it. Turn from it. That's what obedience looks like. God holds you accountable to be sure that your life is clear. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians there were some believers who took that lightly, And they were trying to fellowship with God, acting like they were okay, and God took them. What do I mean by that? He put them to death. He says, I'm not going to play with this. He's still doing that today. So if you're saying you trust in God, you better take him seriously and walk in his way. By the way, if there's something that keeps you from communion today, it shouldn't keep you from communion next month and a month after and a month after. You got time to get it right. God wants us to be in communion with him. The name of our church is Sweet Communion. To have fellowship with God and fellowship with each other. So each month, the first, usually the first Sunday of the month, we have time to think about that at communion and to remind ourselves how important it is to get those things right, and then to get them right. And I admit, we work to keep them right. It's not easy. How do I get along with all y'all? How do y'all get along with me? It's not easy. We work at it. I know Donna's saying, oh, it's so easy to get along with him. (laughs) It's so sweet. It's just, I wake up in the morning with a smile, she says. (laughs) she's silent now if you can see her face (laughs) the point is it's a challenge to live together but we welcome that and we embrace that challenge we're going to pray and um prepare ourselves for communion today and uh, i'm going to ask brian if he give us a chance of silent prayer to get things right with god and then lead us in prayer after that moment of silence so let's bow our heads in silent prayer and brian will lead us
1: We thank you, Lord, for choosing us, Lord, for saving us out of this world, Lord. We pray, Lord, that in our meditation, Lord, that as we reflected on what you've done for us, Lord, that we would have repented from our sins, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you forgive us of our sins. I pray that you would turn our hearts to seek after you. But I pray, Lord, if there's anybody in this room who is not seeking after you, who is putting on a show for somebody else that they would not take communion knowing Lord that you know the truth I pray Lord if it's anybody in this room Lord who is um, not seeking to be baptized or have not been baptized that's a clear command from you Lord we pray Lord that they would not take part in this communion we pray Lord that you would hold them to this Lord that our aim of our charge, the aim of our preaching and teaching is love that issues from a pure heart a good conscience and a sincere faith And so if we have those three qualities, Lord, we can have the confidence to come before you and take this communion and receive your blessing. And so, Lord, we pray, Lord, that there will be a blessing on all of those who in good hearts, Lord, take part in this communion. But we also, Lord, we pray your forgiveness, Lord, and we thank you for the humility for those who will refrain from taking communion because they know that they don't have those things. But we pray, Lord, they would not stay in that way, that they would get those things right. And we pray, Lord, for this whole congregation, that you will bless this church, Lord, as we seek to honor you by doing this, Lord, until you return. Looking forward to the day where you will eat and have a feast with us, Lord, in person. And so we pray for that, Lord, and we keep this feast in that memory of you. And so in this we pray. Amen.
0: We're going to pray for the elements. Um, I'm going to ask Cliff if he would pray for the uh, wafer that represents Jesus' body. Andy, if you would pray for the juice that represents Jesus' blood.
1: Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for our communion today, the solemn commitment that we've made to memorialize you for what you did on Calvary's cross, Lord. We thank you for the body that you gave, Lord that the bread represents. And we pray, Lord, as we take it, we take it with a pure heart, clean spirit, and that it will glorify you. So as we partake of the table, bless it today, for Christ's sake. amen. Amen. Lord, we continue in prayer. We just ask that you help us be mindful as we take this drink, as we think of the blood that you shed for us, that you did so willingly. Been reading through your Word and um, of the crucifixion account, and you went into the crucifixion knowing the pain and suffering that would befall you,
0: the tremendous insult, the tremendous amount of punishment that you received for us,
1: Lord. And we just praise you for that. We thank you for that sacrifice you made, and we ask that you help us continue to be mindful of that. And we just thank you for the opportunity that we can just take
0: communion together as your body. In your name, we pray. Amen. Men, would you position yourself starting at the back, we're going to ask you to come along the side aisles from the back and then go back to your seats from the center aisle. We also want to ask that as you take the cup, both elements are in that cup. When you get back to your place, um, do, not, do not take the cup yet. <clears throat> Excuse me. When you get back to your place, wait for us to all receive it together. Would you all stand and follow directions of our men as we start in the back rows? There are two seals on the cup. The first one is a clear, and you will remove that seal, that first seal, and take that wafer, hold it in your hand as we get ready to receive it together. This represents Jesus' body. A body that he took to become a human being so that he could be laid across the cross. He could suffer for our sins. He was beaten. He was, he was whipped. He was spat upon. He was ridiculed. His body could no longer take the physical drain and punishment until he died on the cross for our sin. We remember Christ in this service. Let's eat this together as we remember him. There's another seal if you would carefully remove that. Before Jesus went to the cross, he had a meal. It was a Passover meal with his disciples. And he instituted this at that meal. And it was to let them know what he was going to do. He was just moments away from the cross. And he took a cup and he says, this represents the new covenant in my blood. That is the new agreement, the new means for which God would bring people into right relationship with him, and that is by the sacrifice of the innocent, the blood of the innocent one, Jesus Christ. We are so thankful that Jesus died for our sin. And that God accepts his payment as the adequate, sufficient payment for our sin. Because of Jesus, we have salvation. Let's remember Christ as we drink together. We're going to close our service in a word of prayer. I'm going to ask Lawrence if he would pray for us um, as we leave this place until we meet again.
1: Lord, we just come before you today just thanking you for the sacrifice that you made, stepping out of heaven into a body, um, being beaten and dying for us so that we may have remission of sins, Lord. Um, We are forever grateful for what you have done for us, and I pray that you just help us to think about that as we go throughout our week, Lord, until we return here again. I pray that you help us, if we did not take communion today, Lord, to seek somebody out to help us navigate what it is that stopped us from doing that. Um, I pray that we're able to get any wrong relationships right. If there's something that we're holding on to, Lord, you help us to let that go so we can fully embrace you. Thank you for, again, just the sacrifice that you made for us. And we are um, just forever going to worship you for that. We are thankful that we are able to commune today in your absence. Lord, But we pray for the day and long for the day when we're able to commune in your presence. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.